Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is a departure from our typical slate of legal industry change agents. Over the course of 23 interviews, we focused on the unique journeys of our guests, specifically focusing on the legal industry. We've looked both at their histories and their current endeavors. Today, we're going to take a look into the future with world-renowned futurist Ross Dawson to help shed light on the path ahead. If you're at all interested in how these current events might shape the future, you won't want to miss this. I first became aware of Ross's thought leadership when Cypharth brought techniques of robotics and artificial intelligence into our service delivery platform. Ross's conceptual frameworks on the human economy are powerful tools for understanding the future of work and its impact on individuals. Recently, Ross delivered a client program for Cypharth exploring the drivers reshaping work. We wanted to keep the conversation going, so we invited him to be a guest on the podcast. I couldn't have been more thrilled to have this conversation with Ross. Listen in to learn what Ross means by the individual economy and why this means organizations should give workers more choices. What the shift to remote work means in terms of the way we think about ourselves as workers, as humans, and as connected individuals. And why Ross continues to be an optimist about the future, even at a time when technology is exacerbating polarization and we have so many factors driving pessimism in the world. Ross's contribution to the topic of the future of work is too lengthy to recount verbally in this introduction. So please check out the show notes for a full listing of his work. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Ross, how are you? Thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be uh, speaking with you, Steve. It's a distinct privilege, Ross, to be able to talk to you. I've been following your work for a long time, and you've been very influential in how I think about the human economy and ways that technology can be used to augment innate human qualities. So thank you for making the time today. A pleasure and an honor. How have you been handling the pandemic? I know that before the pandemic, you've spoken and given keynotes or strategy and live strategy sessions in over 30 countries. And so you must have spent a lot of time on airplanes, which came to, a, I presume, a screeching halt 18 months ago. How did you make that adaptation on a human level? So I've always had this theory of... Um this idea of the, the right amount of travel, which is enough travel and not too much. And for me, that, that's actually quite a lot. Though so there is, of course, such a thing as too much travel. And, and I was very much enjoying, I, you know, I was continuing getting invited to countries I'd never been to before. It was exciting. And it was part of the input, which feeds my work and, and perceiving what's going on in the world. But when it shut down, I was actually quite surprised. It actually I'm quite happy to, to be <laughs> in one place. And that's helped by the fact that I live at Bondi Beach, where I can swim all year round. And it is a beautiful place to be. And so I, I've been to Bondi. It's absolutely <laughs> spectacular. So I was quite happy for quite a while. I'm, I'm getting a little itchy to sort of see a little bit more of the world. And uh, in Sydney, Australia, we were actually were very, very fortunate for a long time. We were one of the best places on the planet in terms of just having relatively normal lives, but we are currently in lockdown. So, but I'm writing a, I'm writing a book at the moment, so that's fine. I'm locked away, forced to do that. So, <laughs> so I can't really complain. Thank you for asking. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you've been able to adapt. Uh, and as I said, I've spent time at Bondi Beach and I'm, it's, if you got to be locked down, there's very few better places in the world to be locked Absolutely. down than Bondi. 
Well, as we get started, I started making a list of all the things going on in the world that are disruptive or change agents. And I got myself very depressed at doing it from pandemics to climate change to emerging issues around social justice, at least in the United States, to the nationalism trend that's been going on for the last few years. I kind of had to stop at that point because I, I was making myself depressed. But I know that you have looked at these dynamics in human society, and you talk about them causing shifts, some accelerating shifts, some affecting prior trend lines, you see. Could you talk a little bit about how you see these events and these dynamic causes affecting the future? Well, the, at the turn of the decade, I was saying, I don't think many people have an idea of quite how much change this decade will encompass. And I certainly didn't anticipate quite how fast that would happen, even just the first year. But this is, because we keep on saying it, it sounds trite, but this is absolutely a critical juncture in human history on so many different dimensions. Now, if we look, I suppose, zoom in on today, I mean, one of the most obvious things that are accelerating are, of course, in our connectivity, where the technologies of connection have been established well enough that we are now able to shift to largely remote work when we have to do that. Uh, remote shopping, of course, acceleration of shift of physical retail to online retail in various guises in terms of entertainment, of course, not going to theaters anymore. So these will come back in various forms, but this acceleration of this ability to use digital connection is you know, one of the most obvious ones. But an associated part of that is what I've often described as this idea of modularization, moving to smaller and smaller elements of value creation and what I've sometimes described as the economy of individuals. So instead of the organization being the value creating unit, it is now the individual. And that has been in play again for some time. And so now that we've started to see this again shift to connected work. This is starts becomes more and more relevant in terms of how organizations structure themselves, how value is created, more and more freelance work or, or people working individually. And of course, the platforms that have enabled that. And as you've pointed out, the forces of polarization across multiple dimensions, including economic, social, access to healthcare, and many others have been accentuated in a networked world. And this is, and many of these aspects of polarization have again been augmented through this disruption that we've had in the economy. You got a lot in there. Let's unpack a little bit of it. Uh, when you talk about the economy of individuals, can you flesh that out a little bit for me? Precisely what are you talking about as it, as it compares to the economy of organizations? So this does not mean that organizations don't exist, but it means that in the first instance, on the fairly obvious way, we are having more and more people who either are freelancers, they are independent ages, what Dan Pink a long time ago called the free agent nation. And so we're starting to get more and more of us working as individual contractors, as freelance agents, as individuals, sometimes with a single client, more often with multiple clients. But with the also, this is where, you know, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn describes as the alliance between the employer and the employee. And it says there, you know, there is mutual value and be able to get the most, develop the individual to give them as great a value as possible for the organization, but for themselves. And so this alliance means that individuals within an organization are becoming, again, free agents, more and more flexible, able to do things outside that. Fewer and fewer organizations are constraining the ability of their staff to do things on the side, the side gigs and so on. 
And inside organizations, I believe we're moving away from the rigidity of the structure of, you know, this is a job, this is a role, you know, this is very tightly defined, let's find the right person to put in this box, to ones where we are allowing organizations to, in a more fluid format, bring together the value of the individuals to create value for the organization. So the organizations still exist, but now we have more and more of those that are using this combination of full-time staff, of full-time contractors, of outsourced staff, of crowd workers. So, you know, so for example, major platforms such as Upwork now have major corporate divisions where they work with major corporates say, we have thousands or hundreds of thousands of individuals who can work for you on specific things. You may have some of those start people internally, they may be busy, and we provide this far more fluid flow. So this means that again, this, this goes back to the individual. And of course, you know, it's labor plus capital. So a lot of that capital is embedded in technologies, more and more of artificial intelligence, the workflows, the processes. These are what uh, makes the organization work. But the individual is more and more, I believe, at the heart of the essence of how we understand value creation. Are there certain industries that are more advanced? I mean, putting aside the true gig industries, the Ubers, the Lyfts of the world, the Upworks, are there industries that have grasped this concept more quickly than other industries? And will they have an advantage competitively going forward? Well, broadly, technology or technology-based industries, and this includes not just your classic startups, which have class, you know, the, one of the key choices for any startup founder is saying, do you have a local dev team? Do I have one in Ukraine or India or, or somewhere else or some combination of these? And these are the choices available and plenty of debates as to which is superior, but these are just the common places of how you define those. So as we shift from physical retail to e-commerce broadly, again, these are distributed enterprises. And whilst the shipping, fulfillment, logistics, again, you know, is largely outsourced, distributed. And so essentially retail, other than the physical manifestation of if a physical store, if, if that still is part of the play, these are distributed enterprises with the teams, you know, be there from the marketing and the platforms and the, the social media engagement and all of, uh, of course, through to the uh, often outsource uh, sourcing uh, logistics delivery essentially distributed enterprises. That's, I suppose, another obvious one. And I suppose on the other, some of the ones which are less, those are more obviously capital intensive, such as utilities. Though it's interesting, I think one of the interesting points around one of the, if we look at decentralization as a theme in our economy, in fact, energy is one of the ones where that could be the most pointed in the long run, moving from this macro generation of energy to local sustainable energy creation and local fuel cells, be they in the house or the neighborhood or a, a locality. And so again, that's not the economy of individual. This is still, this lie, goes to this theme of decentralization. And of course, if we get overlaying, I suppose, these themes of shift of institutions to individuals, again, it is around from the decentralization of which blockchain, of course, is one of the mechanisms where we are shifting to these decentralized value creation. What does this decentralization mean for the individuals? I mean, obviously it's empowering them, but we have societies built upon this organizational framework 
and you're talking about a the acceleration of a of a real shift in that which i think is for example i'll take the legal industry there's a lot of discussion as we talk about return to offices remote working about culture about how to connect people about how to train and develop people what does this shift mean in terms of the way we think about ourselves as workers as humans as connected individuals so perhaps the first point to make is that these forces are accentuating polarization. So it's not good for everyone. So essentially there is this divide between those who have world-class expertise and can now sell themselves to the highest bidder, uh, those who provide the most value to them wherever they are in the world. And so I can be in Bondi Beach for argument's sake and work for anyone anywhere around the world or in Boulder, Colorado, or wherever you may choose to be. And so those who are, have that world-class expertise have an augmentation of their capabilities and their earning capacity. Whereas those that are crudely put, but I mean, it is a reality, is commodities, as in replaceable, start to see their value being pushed down. And so that is the case, of course, for substitutable drivers or delivery people or many types of you know, low-end coding and so on. So this is a force of polarization. And where you are on that spectrum is a fundamental driver of your perception of how it is you engage with the system. And clearly, education, skills, capability development are fundamental to being able to move up that curve from commodity to having some more significant value to potentially being, you know, then having that unique capability and then being able to name your price. So, the, I mean, there's quite a few other dynamics, but I think that's right. an important one is a, to recognize that the polarization of a networked world, and people talk about the long tail, and we've talked about in content distribution as in terms of, okay, well, there's some books that sell a million copies, and now there are so many books that sell 10 copies. But it's similarly, this long tail, this power law distribution applies in any scale-free network. And as we are seeing, there's more and more everybody participating in this connected world of work. This power law applies with big winners, and unfortunately, a, a very large number of those who are disadvantaged. And this is where we start to need to look at some of the social or structural remedies to this. That was exactly where I was going with this, because as you're describing it, you're talking about potential exacerbation of trends that have been going on, the polarization trends that have been going on for a while. And there are, there are people that like being truck drivers. And yet there's the reality that trucks may become automated self-driving vehicles at some day. And yet there are people that like being truck drivers and are going to feel left out. What are the societal dynamics we have to grapple with as you see these trends? What are the levers we need to be pulling? So these are very big questions, of course, and so don't have any snappy answers. But one of the first ones is there's much debate around universal basic income. And there are many, many facets of that, not all of them to fall clearly in this under that description. There are many factors which suggest we do need a basic level of social support, uh, well, financial support as, as more accurately, because of the disruption of you know, the pace of shifts of change. So from the very beginning of humankind, we have had the destruction of jobs, beginning from the invention of the plow, of course, the spinning jenny in the 18th century being a massive disruption. But of course, at the same time, we have always created more jobs. The debate, of course, on whether we will continue to create more jobs than we destroy is an open one, and I am an optimist on that. But even so, the pace of job destruction 
is unprecedented and will continue to be. And therefore, the transition from those people who have had their jobs destroyed to eventually being able to find the jobs that are being created, which I believe we will be able to create, is massive. And, and part of this is, of course, driven by the technologies, which are significantly of artificial intelligence, which are exceedingly concentrated by those who have the capital and capabilities to develop those, which leads to the view of how is it that we can support as many, I believe everybody, to be able to transition through these changes. So there are now, for the last five, 10 years, many universal basic income experiments, and they're all framed as data gathering. What do people do when we give them a basic level of income? And so from Finland to Berkeley to New Zealand to Canada to many other places around the world, there are these experiments. And you know, you want to find out a lot about what happens to people's behaviors. You want to know, do people stop looking for work when they have a basic income? Or are they find the time to develop their capabilities so they can get jobs and enhance themselves. And I suppose, you know, the two key things about universal basic income is one that is universal. So everyone gets it. And if you already have other wealth, then part of that will be taxed out, but everyone gets it and you don't need any costs of administration. So you don't need all these layers of assessing whether this person should get it or whether they don't. And you know, have they applied for jobs and all of these other things, incredible administration costs. So you're taking that out. And the other thing is, is basic, as in it is survival. So it is not saying, okay, we're going to give everybody enough to live a affluent life, but something to survive, which then usually provides the motivation and the means and the capabilities to be able to take the actions, to get the work, develop skills, move to where the work is available, and to be able to create that. So this is, I believe, a small part of the answer is being able to consider these kinds of issues in terms of our structure. And I suppose the other broad category is around education and skill development and capabilities and be able to understand the skills and the capabilities of that are going to be relevant that are relevant today and will continue to be relevant so that we can help to transition people to those skills yeah but you've got two forces at work here it seems to me one is this transformation to the economy of the individuals which i agree with all of your thinking on this by the way and the need for societies to deal with that through techniques like universal basic income, universal health care, et cetera. Yet in many countries, and obviously I'm speaking from an American's perspective, but I think U.S. is not the only highly polarized, politically stratified society that can't seem to agree on the most basic facts that today is Monday. Somebody's going to disagree with that. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that these societal mechanisms that need to come into place to deal with this transformation will be brought into place fast enough to deal with this polarization that's you talk about increasingly happening as a result of technology? I suppose this brings me back to my broader frame where I am an optimist by nature and, and also by choice, because I believe that it's the only sane choice is to believe that we can create a better future. But, and, you know, that has been challenged, of course, in the, the last uh, five years or so and what's happened around the world and, you know, on a whole variety of different dimensions in terms of climate and politics and the pandemic and healthcare and many other issues. It is challenging to look at the world and wonder how we'll transcend the challenges that we have. So I suppose the, the macro frame for my life, and I believe the ways we need to think is, is it possible that we can create a better future? And the, the point is not so much to believe that that's necessarily the outcome, 
but to believe that it is possible. And if we don't believe it's possible to create a better future, then we might as well check out now. But if we do believe that it is possible in some way, in some form, then it is around the issue simply becomes, what can we do now to maximize the chances of us moving towards that better world? So as I said, my, my optimism has been challenged by much of what is happening in the world today. But I do believe that there is much that we can do, an extraordinary amount that we can do in order to be able to move forward. And part of that, to your point, is around being able to, well, I suppose coming back a point, I, I believe a part of it is in fact our democratic structures. I think that what we call democracy is not very democratic necessarily. And there is potential for us to create, you know, the idea of democracy is government by the people, as it were, is the right one. We do not want dictatorships. We do not want oligarchies. We do not plutocracies. We do want democracy. But we do need to shape that in a way which does more truly reflect who we are as people in an inclusive sense rather than a divisive sense. And there, I believe there are some mechanisms we can do, but it's very difficult, of course, to change existing political structures to be able to achieve that. Yeah, the, the other challenge, it seems to me, is that you're talking about, again, and I'll, I'm speaking from an American viewpoint here, but I think for most politicians in most democracies, I don't think their fundamental nature is a whole lot different from one another in the sense that it's a difficult challenge for a politician who's standing for election every two years, every four years, to advocate investments or changes the fruits of which are likely to be seen 10 years from now, 15 years from now, they're not seeing any benefit from that. How do you go about changing that mindset? Because take the response of nations to the clarion call of climate change. You know, we, we see the debate here still in the States as to should we do anything at all? And that, that short-term mindset when you're faced with short-term problems that require a longer-term mindset seems to be a challenge that we need to find a way to overcome. How do we overcome that? Well, I suppose one of the first points is, I suppose, the assumption of our existing political structures of the vote people in every two or four years. But let's, let's just take that as a given for the foreseeable right. future. And I suppose, again, pulling this out to the big picture, it is around broadening our thinking. And that is my mission in life, is how is it that I can help more people think a little bit more broadly than they have before, and particularly around further into the future. The reality is that very few people think much about the future at all in a structured way, you know, other than in hope or fear or, or you know, more, more general ways. So first starting with our leaders, and of course, more broadly, all of us, I think that there is an extraordinary amount that we can do to just push people that little bit more into envisaging the future, thinking more about it, to be able to engage more and to relate actions today to what the futures they might create. So there's been some studies in which people inside a virtual reality encounter their older self. And they start to change some of the health behaviors as a result. More than, <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> more than uh, more than they might otherwise. And so, you know, these are in fact technological tools. And you know, there's a whole wealth of people who are trying to work on these issues of how is it that we stretch people's thinking that little bit further. And so, I, I believe in this idea of openness to other ideas. And, and I suppose to your point earlier, there are some people who are explicitly closed. I have more than faith in my opinion, I don't want to change that. And that's, I suppose, harder to work with. But still, I think that we can 
you know, I, I certainly strive and many people I know are striving to be able to just wear away just that tiny bit to be able to push people to think that little bit further into the future or more tangibly or to be able to think about other perspectives and bring that on to understand that whatever you have believed in the past, the pace of change in the world means that you must continue to reshape and reform your opinions. What was relevant yesterday is not relevant today. What is relevant today may not be relevant in the future. And in order to survive and to thrive, we absolutely need to be fluid. So that rigidity of thinking, which might have been relevant 50 years ago, is not today. And so the institutions and the organizations and the leaders who are not expressing that will not succeed as much as the ones which are more fluid, dynamic, open. And I, I believe if we look at the largest companies by market capitalization, that expresses that. If we look 20 years ago, the vast majority of the top 10 by market capitalization were, or were oil and gas companies. Today, they're mainly technology companies. So that is a number of things that underlie that shift. But part of it, I think that there's uh, generally the old oil and gas leaders were you know, not the most flexible thinkers. <laughs> Whereas a lot of the technology leaders, I think by nature of getting to where they've got, have, you know, they've, they've seen an incredible change even during the lifetime of their organizations. One of the undergirding a lot of what you're talking about is the impact of technology. And you, you've touched on this in a number of different ways, but let's pull that out for just a second, because there's a, this rigidity of thinking creates a fear of technology, a fear of automation. It's coming for our jobs. It's going to do everything. We'll have nothing to do. And yet you sort of posited it as enhancing human dimensions of augmenting the strengths of people. Could you just flesh out that a little bit more and talk about how you see technology fitting into the way we do business, the way we operate ourselves as human society? Absolutely. So I can't remember who to attribute the quote to, something along the lines of technology is not good, it's not bad, and it's not neutral. And it is a compliment to us. You know, so humans create technology. That is what we do. We created you know, our first tools. We created our first buildings. Everything that we have created is a form of technology. And now that acceleration of human creation of technology has shaped us. And, you know, the quote attributed to Marshall McLuhan, you know, we make our tools and thereafter our tools make us. And so our attitude to that is fundamental. We're seeing the technologies that we have created not as things that enslave us, as arguably they do already in some ways, but as things that complement. We, we are symbiotes. We are becoming cyborgs in a way. You know, even glasses are a tool which uh, enhances. And now, of course, we are long offloaded our memories in various guises to technological tools and more, you know, nobody does a spreadsheet on a piece of paper anymore. So we are already, you know, merging machines, sort of becoming more than ourselves through technology and for some time already. So that is the frame that we have to have and within organizations as individuals is be able to say, how can I be as happy as possible? How can I have the maximum positive impact? How can I contribute the most to this organization for myself supported by almost integrated with technology? So this is a quite a different frame than most organizational leaders have. But I think this is the frame you need to have to be able to create the organization of the future is to understand that this is not workflow and processes with a bunch of humans to stick in roles, but the symbiotic flow of uniquely human capabilities who are supported and integrated with highly developed technologies, often after artificial intelligence, to be able to do things that neither could do individually. 
And I, you know, I often use the example of what some like to call centaur chess, which is the combination of humans and machines in playing chess. So after Garry Kasparov was beaten by Deep Blue in 1998, so the, the best chess player in the world, beaten by computers, game over. Well, in fact, now humans working with computers can beat both humans and machines at chess. I've read the, I've read your writing on that topic, and it's a fascinating example about the power of people working with technology. I just think that's fabulous. I know you you've written a bunch of books. You're working on one now, I believe, that's talking about, if I understand it correctly, about managing through information and information overload, how you process the rapidity of change and the rapidity of information. Could you just share some of your thinking on that? What do we have to look forward to in the next book? So we live immersed in information. Essentially, we are finite beings with finite cognition in an infinite world. So, and arguably, humans are information processing animals. That's all we do. Even in pre-civilization, that's what we did. We processed information for our environment in order to be able to make decisions and you know, eventually come up with tools and great ideas and build what we have today. And that has become more and more refined until today. That is an arguably the core of our capabilities to achieve anything is that ability to process information. Now that we have been hijacked at all fronts where, of course, information is not provided to us in the optimal formats, but ones which serve the people providing that, be that in social media streams or biased media or just things which pull us into service ads or whatever it may be. So it is our challenge to rather than be controlled or essentially be shaped by the information that comes across us, to have the choice, to make the choices deliberately. Say, well, why is it that I want to see information at all in the first place? What do I want from that information? To understand the purpose from that, to be able to build frameworks of that information, you know, filter effectively, to have, use, understand, you know, often the recent developments in neuroscience to be able to achieve the focus, you know, the different focus modes to be able to process information effectively, and finally build the mental models of the world that are effective, that continue to be refined as new information comes in, and to make the decisions and act in a way that serve our purpose. So I believe in a way, this is the essence of what it is to be human, certainly the essence of what it is to, you know, this is not just in the world of work, it's also around saying, what are the healthcare choices that I make? These are difficult decisions. We've got a lot of information and contradictory information around here. Yes, yes we do. We take, take care of our health and those of our loved ones. So it is, is really trying to be a compact primer on the essence of how it is that we think about information so that we can thrive on it. And so it's not about managing it because it's unmanageable. It is around saying rather than be overwhelmed, to be drowned by this flood of information, to be able to say, well, in fact, this is an opportunity. And I, I wrote an article in 1997 called Information Overload, Problem or Opportunity, where obviously we have quite a lot more information around than we did 24 years ago, mm -hmm. but it was still the same frame and still believing that those who are able to better process and make sense of the world today, and I think there's many things, capabilities we can develop to do so, will thrive and prosper as never before. You, you do strategy for a lot of organizations around the world. 
And one of the challenges leaders of organizations have is they both have to take information in and make their own decisions on behalf of the organization, but they also have to be communicators of information to get other people to understand the roles of the organization or the goals or performance or whatever it may be. Do you also talk about how leaders of organizations now should think about how they communicate information as well as how they take in information and distill it? There's some, I think, some really nice work coming out around this theme. I mean, lovely book, uh, Think Again by Adam Grant, and you know, a number of other ones on similar themes lately. And this essence of not just how is it that we help ourselves to be more open to other ideas, but how do we engage with others in order to help them to countenance things other than they'd uh, already thought. And this is never about arguing. This is always about being able to provide options. Very, very long time ago, I studied neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, did, you know, became a master practitioner in that. And it, it may have come from somewhere else, but in a way, what the essence of what that is, is giving people more choices. And the essence of the belief is that if people are doing bad things for themselves or others, it's not that they're bad, it's just that they don't know anything else. And so the whole point is to be able, how do you give people more choices, more options in what they, how they behave and what they believe? When you have more choices and options, then you're more likely, more open to take the ones that are going to be better for you and others. And so it's not saying you are wrong to anybody. It's never about that. It's being able to say it's always and. So in improvisational theater, you never say no. You always say yes and. So you always take what you are given and then you build on that. And that's the nature of a dialogue that we have to have. It's never the argument. It's never the no. It's always yes. And this is another way to see that. This is, it's always trying to provide more options, more ways of seeing things, more possibilities. That's fabulous. Ross, last question before we run out of time. You're a futurist, a keynote speaker, a, a strategist. What was your own life journey that led you to this? I don't think most people think of that end result as being something that's out there where most people can achieve. How did you work towards this particular role in life? From early on, I had encountered the idea of futurologists, and I thought that was a wonderful thing to be. And it's a, it's a very varied life and career, and I think that has served my purpose in providing many perspectives. I started off selling computers for NCR. I did a degree in physics. Well, actually, well, actually going back, I was very fortunate in that my father got a job in the United Nations, so I went to the International School of Geneva. So that was incredibly international upbringing deeply grateful for the exposure I had to all of the cultures at the time. Studied physics because I just thought it was the most interesting thing to study, not because that's what I wanted to do. Uh, got a job selling computers with NCR. Said, okay, I'm in I, money goes, makes the world go around. I need to understand money. So I worked for Merrill Lynch in international equities. And then I moved to Tokyo where I became a financial journalist and got a series of promotions and ended up running the capital markets group for Thomson Financial at the time out of London. So at the time I came back to Australia after that and said, all right, well, then and really have embarked on the journey, which I am now and beginning to write the books, which have, I suppose, given me visibility in my work, played with many, many entrepreneurial ventures along the time and to, to build up my, my thinking, my ideas. And I, I think it's interesting. I have kept a journal since my late teens or even earlier. 
And I think that's incredibly valuable. And I'm gratified when I look back at what I sought to make of my life when I was very young and all the way through. And I've been incredibly consistent in creating that. Well, you're, you're doing some wonderful work and you're advancing all of our thinking on the challenges society faces. Uh, Ross, thank you very much for joining us today. If people want to find more about you, you can go to rossdawson.com. You can also go to the Advanced Human Technologies Group website, ahtgroup.com. And there you can find information on Ross's books, his speaking, and his thinking. Ross, again, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully you're getting your day started out there in Australia. Great pleasure to talk with you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.